Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week on the Root Simple Podcast is Shannon Hayes. Shannon is the author of many books, including Radical Homemakers, Long Way on a Little, and The Grass-Fed Gourmet Cookbook. She has a new book of essays called Homespun Mom Comes Unraveled. Shannon also raises grass-fed livestock on her family's Sapbush Hollow Farm. Welcome, Shannon, to the Root Simple Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, welcome, Shannon. Let's set the stage a little bit here. Tell us a little bit about where you live, uh, how you live, and your family. I realize that's kind of a big question, but it'd be nice to kind of set the scene for our listeners who may not know you. Yeah, well, well, every time I think about you two, I think of myself as living the philosophical equivalent and the geographical opposite of you. <laughs> no, that's nice. <laughs> so I live with my husband and my two children in upstate New York, high in the Catskill Mountains, and we partner with my parents on Sapbush Hollow Farm. So we're on a livestock, a grass-fed livestock farm high in the Catskill Mountains, and we decided a long time ago that we all preferred gainful unemployment to uh, professional jobs. So this tiny little 160-acre farm is now supporting three generations of my family as we go about our lives. And um, we raise lamb and beef and pork and poultry. But on top of that, in order to expand what we need to live. My husband and I also engage in a lot of handcrafts. Um, we sell wool and yarns and different products from our sheep. Uh, my husband weaves blankets. We, make, uh, we take the byproducts from the animals and we render the fats and then we make soaps and salves that we also sell and our children who are homeschooled also help us with this. So we're three generations who try to work by getting by, uh, getting by with our our manual and creative talents, if you will. Now, uh, one of the things that, that we're obsessed about you a little bit with is the whole grass-fed beef thing. Now, uh, before we get into the, the new book that you have, I know you've written a couple of books on uh, pasture-raised meat. Cookbooks, like four cookbooks. or is it five um, books about cooking with grass-fed meat? You know, I lose count, too. <laughs> <laughs> There are quite a few out there. Who would have thought that you could have that much to say about beef? <laughs> but it is true because we don't eat a lot of beef. We um, One of the, the sorry things about living here in Los Angeles, and I don't quite understand it because it is a quite large city, um, is that we have trouble finding um, decently sourced animal products. And so if we lived in your neck of the woods, we'd be buying food from you. Um, but as a result, we don't eat much meat because yeah, but uh, you probably you probably get a lot more prickly pear than I do. Yeah, we do eat a lot, a lot of prickly, of prickly pear. pear. <laughs> That's what we we love avocados and prickly pear, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, grass fed okay. meat does not come across our plate, <laughs> so <laughs> I know nothing about it. But except that I know that it needs to be cooked differently. So you found a niche, sort of a cookbook niche, explaining to people how to how to work with this, right? Yeah. Well, when I first got out of grad school. 
I was looking at my family's business, and I studied sustainable agriculture in grad school, and I looked at my whole career of what I was going to do now that I had spent 10 years of my life in higher education. And um, I'd learned all about the importance of these small farms, and I looked at what my family was doing, and by all the theories I was studying in school, we were doing everything correctly, but it was still a struggling business. And I realized that the greatest academic contribution I could make to sustainable farming in the world of sustainable farming was writing books that helped ordinary, everyday people access grass-fed meat and learn about how we lived, how we make the decisions we make, and get them over the fear of, of making connections with farmers. Because back then, if it didn't come out of the grocery store, people just didn't trust it. When I first started writing these cookbooks, they had no faith in anything that wasn't in, you know, the, under the fluorescent lighting of a butcher's case in a grocery store. So I set about exploring all the different cuts of meat, teaching myself how they, how they performed in different scenarios, how they were different from conventional meats, and then used that as a platform to teach people about sustainability. I figured out early on that a lot of people were more willing to consider recipes than they were radical life changes. So um, I wrote recipes and then between the lines whispered my subversive thoughts about how we could be living differently. And got my start in the world as a cookbook writer. That's so true. You always, all, people are always hooked through pleasure, right? Pleasure, not, <laughs> not fear or responsibility or anything else like that. Just like, gosh, this stuff is good. <laughs> That's right. And it's a lot easier way to bring them in, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then you, or maybe there's been a cookbook or two after, I'm not sure, but somewhere in all of that, then you, you took a turn and you wrote Radical Homemakers, which is yes, what we like I to call your the- notorious book. Yes, my notorious book. And I remember when I conceived that, I I conceived the idea of radical homemakers because I was dealing with um, people who were telling me in public conferences and on radio interviews and such that what I was proposing, that people eat sustainably and eat meat that's sourced in a responsible way, what I was proposing was impossible for real Americans. And I began to look at my own clientele and realize that contrary to what the press was suggesting, which is that real quality food is only for wealthy elites, um, real quality food in my world was for just ordinary, everyday people. There was nothing wealthy or elite about them. It was people who had really organized their priorities to have this and who had domestic skills. And they had the domestic skills to be frugal, to take a piece of, let's say they took a chicken, and long before it was popular, they knew how to take a chicken, make the meal, make the chicken salad, make the soup, and get you know at least five different trips to the table with that same chicken. These were people who were masters at this. And so I began to realize that a critical piece to regaining sustainability in American culture was reclaiming domestic skills. And... Well, then I thought, oh, my God, I'm joining the radical Christian right, and um, I'm no longer a left-leaning, crazed woman. And I remember sitting down in the living room, staring at my parents and saying, I, I think I have to go forward with this book on this idea, and um, I think I'm going to go up in flames doing it, but I, I have to. So that was the notorious book, and it was all from, from the heart, and I met wonderful people 
who were uh, just as out there as I was in understanding these principles, including yourself. So it was a worthwhile effort. Yeah, it was really great to, to and an honor to be interviewed for that book, I have to say. How would you define what a radical homemaker is? You've talked a little bit about someone who has domestic skills. Is that kind of the, 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 the core of it? I would say that radical homemakers are people who lead values-driven lives. Um, and with the interviews that I did across the country, these are people who live by four primary tenets, and that's ecological sustainability, social justice, family, and community. Those were the four core values that seemed to be the anchor points for all of these people's lives. It wasn't how much money could they make, how much career success could they have, how much fame could they garner. It was about those four things. And because they were making their decisions around those particular values, these people picked up domestic skills to offset the almost necessary loss of income that would ensue from living a values-directed life. Um, by having domestic skills, they were free from having to make choices based on money, basically. They could do for themselves without having to worry about whether they were going to get a six-figure income. They became producers instead of consumers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. As you know very well. Now, I had the the surreal experience recently of going to an academic conference because uh, a friend of mine's a professor and he was in town for it. And I was helping him with a totally unrelated um, discussion at, at the conference. And I noticed there was a panel called Radical Homemaking. And I had to go see that I one. I knew I should have, like, trademarked that word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. Throw those TMs around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a whole other story. But uh, not surprisingly, your book and our book came up during the discussion. And the discussion largely surrounded gender issues. That's what it was about. Uh, I know this this has come up for you, obviously, but... When we talk about domestic skills, it's often assumed that it's the woman of the house that is taking on all the domestic skills. And I was wondering your response to that and how how things play out in your own household in terms of gender and, and uh, chores and responsibilities. Well, I find oftentimes that gender issues is a discussion in academia, and I can only conclude sometimes when I hear that that they really don't have to go home and get shit done um, because... <laughs> Gender issues just doesn't come up in our conversations at home. My husband is working hard around this house, and I would say it's not gender. It's about where our different personalities lie and what our different energies are in here. So, for example, I tend to have a lot of, well, I'm the messy energy. I'm, I'm the one who starts things. I start creative projects. He tends to be more reticent, so I will cook dinner, but he ends up cleaning the dishes. I dirty a lot of laundry with my products, with my projects. He washes a lot of laundry. <laughs> um, I'm the mess maker, and he's the cleaner. And but at the same time, I tend to be the one who takes initiative on things. You know, if something needs to get fixed, and I see that he's dragging his heels. Well, I go make the mess because I've discovered that if I make the mess pulling out the tools then he comes out and he starts. So it's, <laughs> it's a question of um, couples finding not the gender balance, but the character balance. But where the issue does come up, Eric, is that I have noticed now that's fine for Bob and me, but I'm raising two daughters, and they are modeling 
behaviors based on gender. So while Bob and I feel completely liberated from the gender discussion, I have two little girls who think that they can go in the kitchen and cook and they don't have to clean up a darn dish. <laughs> and this, this is a major issue because I'm looking at this situation. Now, Bob and I, our marriage works because one day I came home, I had to go out for the day and he had to cook, and I came home and his hair was standing completely on end. He was staring in the kitchen, children were screaming, and I had never seen his hair stand quite up like this, but it really can do it. And he looks at me wild-eyed and he says, I know you love to cook, I know you say it's relaxing, and I know I should be able to cook too, but if I never ever have to set foot in this kitchen again to prepare a meal, I will be a very happy man. <laughs> and, and at the same note, he has begged me, masterful dishwashing on my part, he has begged me never ever to touch the dishes because I'm so deplorable at dishwashing. <laughs> and so we have what any couple that loves each other and is together for a long time, we have our our you know, respective duties in the house. But my children are watching, and now I'm thinking, oh, no. They're watching me cook, and they're amazing cooks. They really are. They're inventing all the time. They're always thinking with what local materials and resources are available. But why is it that they think that they don't have to clean up after themselves? Well, they don't have to clean up after themselves because guess who else doesn't? So, (laughs) Eric, I want to say that it's exclusively an academic problem, but clearly... I'm facing it in a big way, and I don't have an answer on how to resolve that right now. Now, how old are your daughters? Eleven and seven. And have you had a kind of discussion about these issues with them, or is this just kind of something you're thinking about uh, having a discussion about? Oh, oh, discussion. <laughs> At that age, you don't discuss. It's quite <laughs> Um well, what's happening with my, with my kids is I find myself saying, look, I know it looks like a double standard here, but... There's a lot of other work that happens, and you can't learn to cook until you do these other skills. And um, right now, it's, it's empty. It's empty talk. And I've come to learn with parenting that it's not truly empty. It's that you have to repeat the message a lot. And I have to model more cleaning if I want them to realize that they have to clean too, which I think is really unfair right now because then he needs to model more cooking. <laughs> 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 he needs to get more work done in here on the computer and all these other things. Um, so I, I think it would be different if there were a male and uh, a boy and a girl that mm. we were raising. So I'm raising two girls and Man, their husbands better be good dishwashers, is all I can say, and they better know how to do laundry. <laughs> so neither of them, neither of your daughters shows any, um, like, that they inherited any of their father's tidiness? No! No, none. <laughs> no, definitely not. Oh, my God, you should see this place. <laughs> um, but, again, sometimes I have to take a deep breath and say, well, maybe that's my husband's issue. Um, because we're hygienic enough, you know. I certainly know... My kids certainly know about, you know, pathogenic bacteria in the kitchen and how to work around uh, food, and they know about cleaning up and first aid, and they know about, you know, yes, there are people coming over, and this place will look nice because now mommy's on it. <laughs> when mommy's really had it, they go for it. So, you know, it's just, it's hard. It's an imperfect and messy process, and that tends to be, you know, we're all, we're all pioneers in this. And I don't know how that's going to play out 
in the future, you know, for me to say, look, kid, face it, I don't have to clean up because I've paid my dues, but you do. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to go. Maybe maybe some of your followers will have more constructive ways. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, housework is always always the crux of everything. At least it is around here. I mean, speaking of messy situations, when you're when you uh, have a, a household which is into production, then mess is just inevitable. You know, right. and I and. And somehow there's this like, fundamental unfairness is that like a lot of this production goes on in funny old rickety houses with no counter space or whatever. And then I go places, maybe visiting extended family or whatever, and I go to those those amazing huge suburban houses that have the giant kitchens with countertops oh, yeah. everywhere and a big island and like 3,000 cabinets. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, the couple, they both work two jobs, so they don't cook. <laughs> they, I know. They well, take they out. The they house clean. Yeah, so it's immaculate, like the gleaming granite counters and, you know, and there's like one object in each cabinet. Oh, there's where the blender lives, you <laughs> know. <laughs> and, you know, we have like four square feet of counter space that we try to do everything in. And it's not really a surprise that that counter is always a mess, you know. And, I, and whenever yeah. I want to start some new project, I have to start by cleaning, you know. And, and I, you know, uh, this it's is, tiring. This is a really interesting tension that um, exists with this life. Because I don't know about you, but we also have people who want to get a glimpse of it. Yes! <laughs> they want to come and take pictures, or they want to come and um, be with us in the space. You know, we have some people coming this weekend, some, <laughs> and, and, and they're, they're academics looking at these issues, and they asked if they could come and stay with us. And, of course, Bob, being Bob, is freaking out, saying, we've got to get this place pulled together. And I'm looking at him going, but this is what we do! <laughs> um, That's us. And, That's us. I'm, except I'm Bob. <laughs> I have, I have like, you know, I come from a long line of Martha Stewart's, except for my mom. God bless her. (laughs) My mom's like, yeah, I just don't do none of that. But somehow it's genetic. If Martha Stewart is really into what she says she is, I bet you her kitchen is a total hole sometimes, too. Unless, you know, she's totally outsourced it. But if she was fundamentally about it at some point, she had to have that mess, too. But I have this notion that the house has to be clean. There have to be hot hors d'oeuvres coming out of the oven. It's insane. Like my level of expectation and Eric's just like, what? Yeah. yeah. Well, but this is an issue you you address in your book in a chapter called Coping with Envy, right? No, no. Well, no, no, it wasn't Coping with Envy. It was, we we should, let's, hey, Shannon's written another book. (laughs) And we haven't even got to that yet. And we haven't even gotten to that yet. And it's called Homespun Mom Comes Unraveled. And it's a collection of essays about the lifestyle. And it's it's very funny and often very moving. Um, And we related to a lot of them. But we should talk about coping with envy. But I think it was the company coming is what you're thinking about when there's an essay about people coming to visit and the absolute panic that sets in. (laughs) And and you and your messy daughter's attempts to try to be neat, although it goes against (laughs) everything in you. (laughs) <laughs> For your husband's sake, who, like me, you know, it's like, guests are coming. It's got to be nice. <laughs> Can't it just be nice for one day? <laughs> I know. I always try for, like, you know, maybe by Christmas Eve or something. But, yeah, it is. It's a constant tension. And I, one thing that has happened is that we now recognize it and laugh about it. And you have to work around it, as you two have probably figured out as well. So I know we do, we are faced with a situation that company is coming this weekend. And 
in the in the book, I talked about the one thing that saved us back then when we were still, you know, the family was much younger and we we're still grappling with these issues. The one saving grace is when someone starts to vomit. Oh my God, what a blessing when you're having kids. If you get a kid, I mean, we all panic when someone's going to get the throw up bug, but um, when it's with children. They have to sit still, and if you can at least get them to the age in life when they can catch it in a bowl, then you are so golden because they can't move. <laughs> and children are just, they are mess moving, and, and no matter what they do, if they're creative children and they're not TV watchers, then your house is going to be a chaos. It's so funny. We all talk about the puritanical ideas of, um, you know, no, we're not going to let our children have screen time. Well, the upshot of that is that your house is going to be just, like, total chaos all the time but in in company coming the one thing that happened when we started like sent our prayers up to the fairy godmothers was that the kids got a stomach bug and (laughs) i had to nurse them and suddenly bob got his house restored Um, but where we've learned to move from there is i've had to recognize you know the sustainable life we we can learn all these technical skills but you can't make it work without making your relationships work. And that was the core of Radical Homemakers, too. I realized, you know, any of us can learn to split kindling or um, to make gray water systems or, you know, to be innovative with our hands, but we've got to learn this emotional stuff first. And this little stuff that we sit and laugh at, we sit and laugh at because we know how true it is, that's the stuff that makes the relationships work. And if Bob had to face this kind of mess all the time, he would leave me. And the truth is he has faced this mess and left me before, but he realized that there was nowhere to go. And I didn't even know he'd left. So he came back and we all moved on. <laughs> I was in such a mess. How was I to know that there was someone gone from the picture? Um, <laughs> but I have learned that this is important to the relationship. It's not important to me to have things perfect because I've surrendered that ideal. I know I'm always making something and the next mess is coming and I try to have little spaces for myself that are organized. But every now and then, it really does need to look like this because it matters to him. And we can, we can blow it off all we want, but that's our partner. And if that's our partner, then sometimes it matters. So, for example, this weekend, we do have company coming again. We have five house guests that are expected this weekend. And he's already starting his shallow breathing about it. And I have gone to him and said, look, okay, the kids are going to stay this night at the grandparents' house, so it'll be just us. If we can get it picked up at this time, then they'll be gone. They can't return and make a mess until the company comes. And so I see his shoulders start to relax, and so we build the time in. But he, in turn, has learned that, you know what, it's just not going to happen all the time. What we were talking about is something that we experience a lot here, which is this, you know, we're, we're both you and, and us are, are we're authors of how-to books and recipe books and things like that. We're held up as these paragons of domesticity, right? And, you know, for me, people are so used to, I guess, what I'd call lifestyle porn, you know, like Martha Stewart, we've already mentioned, and people like that, and seeing these photographs of perfect, or Dwell magazine is kind of the most infamous for me. And, you know, Martha Stewart has a staff of hundreds of people. 
There's another blogger, Lloyd Kahn. I don't know if you ever look at his blog, but he does books on tiny houses and things. And one of the things I really love about him is that he always likes to photograph houses that look like people live in them, that look like there's things going on in them that aren't necessarily neat all the time. And one of the things I really loved about your new book is just its brutal honesty about what's going on in your house and, and not thinking that you have to be perfect all the time. Oh, it's true. It's it's a wonderful window into the radical homestead life. You know, it's very honest. Did you, you know, how did you come to the decision to it, to offer that level of honesty to your readers? It seems that in a way, it's it's, it's a follow up to radical homemaking. It it is a follow up, um, and I but I think it comes from well, it comes from a couple things. One thing that happened after the year that Radical Homemakers came out, I, I can. I can pretty openly tell you that was the hardest year of my entire life, quite possibly the worst year of my entire life. The book was wonderfully successful, but I started to feel like I was getting put on a pedestal as somebody who did things right, thought mm. things through, and had a perfect life. Uh-oh. And um, I was sort of, I was getting, for lack of a better word, I was getting branded without even realizing that I described to something. All of a sudden, I was having to fulfill some kind of an image that when I looked at the book, I realized that it was an image that people had sort of taken from their own constructed meanings of my writing, and that was their interpretations of me, and I was feeling a pressure to live up to other people's interpretations of who I was, and it had absolutely nothing to do with who I was. And if you want to talk about setup for a health crisis... Mm. That's a big setup because it was so stressful. At the same time, I observed in the sustainable agriculture field, I'd always gone to a lot of conferences on sustainable farming practices, and the way those practices and this way of eating are promoted are this. If you do this practice, all your problems will be fixed. If you eat this food, you will never get cancer. If you follow this dietary regime, everything will be right. Your family, your children will behave. You will never have a health problem. And then the other side of that is if you don't do this, then that's why you're having the problems that you're having. If you don't market your products using this particular technique. Now, let's, let's be straight here. I'm criticizing the very field that I support and that I'm an active member of. But you know what? To move things forward, we all have to be a little bit critical, don't we? Mm. Um, but I don't know if you've been in, in the movement, part of the, the sustainable farming movement is the sustainable food movement. And there's this sort of tacit judgment. If you do things, if you don't do things the way that are prescribed now, if you don't eat paleo, if you don't ferment your sprout your grains first, if you don't eat dairy that's raw, if you don't do grass-fed beef, whatever it is, then any failings you have in your life are owing to this decision. We're all going to die. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, all, we all crumble. And um, so on top of that, then here I came out with this book that said corporations are bad, jobs are bad, we should be living free of this, and we should all work together as a family and make that the great thing. And, um, and people had their interpretations, therefore, that I had my life figured out, that I had everything perfect. And here's the thing. 
We followed all the perfect ways to eat. We followed all the perfect ways to farm. And I wrote the perfect book about how to be perfectly domestic. (laughs) And we still cried. I still had kids get cavities. My husband, despite our perfect diet, was a type 1 diabetic. I still had embarrassing health conditions that I am not going to discuss on your podcast. (laughs) Um, And we were still human. And when you realize that, then I start to realize, oh, my God, I can't live up under this pressure. I mean, part of what was breaking me down was trying to live up under this pressure that, yeah, I've got it figured out, and therefore I should be a leader. Or because I'm a leader, I'm supposed to have it figured out. And that, I can't live under that. And I don't, you know, you probably can't either. Mm. Here's the, 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 the truth that I've learned is um, we make a life based on our values on this path, whether it's farming, whether it's radical homemaking, whether it's urban homesteading. It is based on our values and the things we most deeply and profoundly believe. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have sick family members. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get sick ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have fights. It doesn't mean that our kids are never going to behave badly. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to screw up. And when I started, so this blog that I've been doing at theradicalhomemaker.net, which a lot of which became this book, Homespun Mom Comes Unraveled, was my opportunity to break free from teaching people how I do it perfectly. It's my opportunity to say, well, here's how I I really don't do it perfectly, or here's how it looks like when you do screw up and you do make bad assumptions or make mistakes, and when your life looks like everybody else's, the only difference is I still love my life, and I'm still really happy. And it's so liberating to write that way. It's so liberating to say, you know what? I'm thinking this today, here's where I went wrong, here's how I'm a flawed and vulnerable soul in this world. And at the end of the day, I still would choose over and over again where I am. And so to teach people about a way of life with an open heart and a flawed uh, a flaw, as a flawed person is so much more freeing to me than to try to be some paragon of exemplary practice. I just, I can't hold up under that. Well, who can? Or an Uber mom. Or an Uber mom. Like, well, like you or say in Uber your mom. Uber mom essay, you know, Uber mom really just wants a martini. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We really do. <laughs> but it should be said you're an Uber mom who homeschools your kids as well. Yeah. Now, um, how did you come to that, and, and what are your thoughts about not just uh, elementary school education, but uh, higher education? Well, you know, it's hard to say about how I ended up coming to homeschooling, but I will say the reason, the reason that I do it is I don't want to tear into the public school system. I have... I have one fundamental concern with the public school system and all the rest of homeschool. My homeschooling choices are about quality of life. My fundamental concern with public schooling is I feel that public schooling trains children to be employees. And I feel that employment is not going to define the future in this country. Mm -hmm. I feel that if we're going to be economically secure, then we have to either be gainfully employed or entrepreneurial and self-employed. So when I say gainful unemployment, I mean sort of like how you and I live, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you you make things work. 
this idea that you're going to please some boss someplace and you're going to keep getting promoted is about as believable to me as, you know, growing up that my children are going to look like Barbie someday. I just don't think it's realistic. And so I feel that regular schooling where they learn to sit for seven hours a day, I think they probably learn some really good skills in school, but I don't feel they learn those entrepreneurial skills that my husband and I feel are really important for making it in a, in a world where resources keep changing and where we need to be adaptive to our environments. So that's one of the reasons why I do it. Do I hate the public school system? No. Do I think that they're doing a better job than me a lot of days? Yeah. I think that in a lot of ways they do a better job than I do. I'm in a situation, however, where we're farming and my quality of life, I would never see my children if I sent them to school because they would be in school when I have time off from the farm and they would be out of school when my family has to work at breakneck speeds to keep up with the cycles of the seasons. And so this is my way of having good quality of life with my children. And I think that a good quality of life over my children matters more than anything else for their futures. And I also see how because we are so entrepreneurial with what we do, my kids are already picking that up. That and that's the most important lesson that we want to teach. You know, the other the other day I was going through our local village with my daughter and they're in the age where they're starting to talk about what they're going to do when they grow up. And my kids don't say what I'm going to be when I grow up. I've noticed they've never said I'm going to be something. They say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And if you listen to the subtext, what they're saying is they don't see anyone as selecting them for anything. They're going to make choices. When they say, I'm going to do this, she said, my daughter will say, you know, that building, it just, it's underutilized. She doesn't use underutilized, but she says that building is wasted in the middle of our town. It's such a beautiful building, and this town needs a source of good, healthy uh, cafe food. I really think that I should be putting a, a little cafe in that building. I think it would be a beautiful spot. Or, you know, kids around here, they, they can't get good toys. Someone should be making toys. My kids talk about what their future in terms of what they're going to do with their hands, with their minds, not with what, you know, whether they're going to be a doctor, <laughs> whether they're going to be a chemist. They, they think about things differently. So that does tie into higher education. I realized when Sarah was in kindergarten and I started running the figures when I was talking to my accountant about college saving plans, I, there was just no way, no physical way that Bob and I were going to be able to have the money put away for them for college. At this point, right now, my family lives, uh, our income last year was less than $30,000. And right now, to send a kid to a school is like $40,000 a year. So, you know, I have a very hard time, even though I have a PhD and, and I took a lot from my education, I have a very hard time swallowing the idea that it takes $40,000 to educate a kid for one year when I can feed, clothe, educate, and house a family of four for less than 30. So I, I think that if they do higher education, it won't be in the conventional setting that we see now. I don't think they're going to be on campuses some days. And uh, I mean, I don't think they're going to be doing the college life like you and I did, quote unquote, the college life. And I know I just can't afford it. And I don't want to see them get into that debt. Maybe they'll get scholarships, but you know what? Maybe they won't. Not everybody can. And I do my best to give them a 
quality education where they will be autodidactic whether they go to college or not. That's part of training someone to be entrepreneurial. If you're training them to be self-teachers, then I think whether they go to college or not is not as important. I think, you know, if they, if they need a particular license for something, then they'll go. But at this point, I see both of them being so independent, and uh, I don't know that it, it will be an applicable outlet for their future. Well, that's true. I mean, the um, most interesting people I know are people who walk different educational paths. Especially in this culture, it takes a lot of uh, moxie to say, yeah, I'm not going to college. Uh, and you're in high school. Um, you know, where, where does that strength come from? And I think it comes from, you know, your upbringing, you know, to say, you know, I don't need that. I, I can, you know, I have, I have a road to walk. I'm going to find it. Well, know? isn't it an outgrowth of the lifestyle in a way? Yes. It's, it's of the DIY ethos that this is something that you, you embody. And do you want to go through the system that has these degrees that tell you what to do ultimately? And more and more that system is looking, you know, it's, it seems to be crumbling, you know, from within. Uh, you know, at once upon a time, the liberal education was was really something to be admired, I think, but I don't think those are actually being given anymore. Like, and then we might have been the last generation uh, to even have hope of an affordable education with a, sort of a, a strong liberal grounding. And, and now they, I think universities very much like the uh, primary schools are, are, are training employees. You know? mm -hmm. So it, it is heartbreaking to see people go into deep, deep, deep debt or families yeah. to give up all their retirement savings to send kids to these employee factories. Well, it's kind of interesting that higher education is unquestioned, especially when the foundation of education is to question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oh, it's just um, so, it's such a bedrock of the middle class, you know, yeah, you will it, it, have it, it, a degree, you know, or but, you are a loser, you know, that, that, and that still holds, but I think it's getting more tentative. Yeah, but the problem I had, um, when I sat down with all my notes after traveling across the country doing Radical Homemakers and looked at everybody's lifestyles and said, okay, you know, how do you piece this together? How do you make this work? The one stumbling block that people had, they would come through and they were independent thinkers. But they had this college debt. Mm. And, you know, we were looking at, and when I was traveling for Radical Homemakers, it was the housing crisis. But um, those people weren't facing the housing crisis. These people, and all the people in that book were making different alternative decisions with their housing. But they, a lot of them were saddled with frightening levels of, of student debt. Mm. And student debt really, I mean, not only does college prepare students um, to be employees, but it also... Um, sets them up financially to have no other choice because of the student debt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want to totally broad brush it and say it's all bad, it's not going to work, because I think we're coming up with solutions around it. I think we're finding ways. But I think one of the things that we have to accept as parents is education starts at home. Whether your children are enrolled in school or not, Education starts at home, and if we outsource this idea that somebody else is responsible for raising our children to become independent thinkers, then we're going to get what we paid for. And so I feel like that ability to question, that ability to teach myself or have my children teach themselves, it has to start under my roof, and that's my job. But then back to the homeschool question, is the school a phenomenal resource here? It's a phenomenal resource to us. Do I support it? Yes, I support 
support it. Will I vote for it for their, you know, on the tax referendum? Yes, absolutely support it. But higher education, um, it's, it's so completely inaccessible to my family at this point. With all our higher education that we have, it has become so out of reach that in a way I'm kind of cornered. I have to talk it down, don't I? Because it's just simply not within reach for my family unless I want to sell out absolutely everything that we've built in our lives. Mm. I can't do it. One college degree for my children would probably require us to completely liquidate the entire assets of a three-generation family business. That's, that's not right. Well, uh, <laughs> let's move on to some <laughs> moving brighter on to things. Something <laughs> equally depressing. No, uh, no. It's, oh, this it's is great because what's really cool is how everyone's working to get around it. That's everyone's true. figuring out that is you true. know how they're going to be creative and how they're going to create their own businesses. Um, I don't know if you guys got to hang out at <clears throat> any of the um, Occupy Wall Street stuff. Mm. Bob and I went down to hang out at Occupy Wall Street in um, New York one day. They they asked the farmers to come in one day. And, um, you know, I'm the kind of person who doesn't go to protest because protest I'm worried about, you know, where am I going to find a bathroom if I need one? <laughs> and, and, you know, oh, my God, these crowds or whatever. But there were all these young people there, <clears throat> and they were being so creative with their message. And it it wasn't littering. It wasn't all the chaos they meant out to be. It was so kind and so loving and so open. And it was all these young people coming up. And it's so funny. You and I used to be the young ones, right? Mm-hmm. We were the, <laughs> the young and up-and-coming generation. And now I'm looking at, yeah, these young kids today. I was so filled with hope. Yeah, they're questioning their educations and they're questioning the student debt. But they're also thinking creatively about it. And they're making creative statements. And, you know, this is part of what change is. So, yes, college, as it is right now. Sorry, I'm going to have barking dogs. Yeah, it's all right. We like barking oh. dogs. Um, so, yeah, you know, something can look really glum, but a lot of times it's just because you're not looking at the other side. And if people are learning to self-teach, if people are starting to recover the tradition of apprenticeships rather than diplomas, um, that's all good stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an apprenticeship in a community builds community, whereas a diploma it's just a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So I think there's great things that could be coming. Speaking of great things coming, it's the Christmas season as we record this. One of my favorite essays in your book was about uh, basically reclaiming Christmas. And you tell a great story in there about the worst Christmas you ever had, where I think your mom was yelling at you. Um, <laughs> you tell that story and then uh, some thoughts about how we can change kind of the, the tenor of this season. Yeah. Um, I've um, written a lot about that in that in that post, and then I've written about it since. But you know, it's kind of hard. The radical homemaking life is easiest for eleven months out of the year, but then you come to Christmas, and we are at such odds because there's the consumer pressure about what Christmas is supposed to be, and then we're coming out of it at it with our ecological ideals. But at the same time, there's so much about Christmas that we love. I mean, we love our families. We love having time with our friends. We love the good food. And these all matter. And this, like, pesky issue of the commercialism around Christmas, to turn your back on it, the kind of brands, well, as my mother screamed at me, Scrooge, it can brand you as a Scrooge, as, you, you know, you're turning your back against these things. And it takes 
a lot of time and effort to work through that. And I realized, you know, I, I she called me a Scrooge for good reason. I was being a jerk. I didn't mean to be a jerk, but I was so conflicted. I realized that, you know, the, like the simple act of gift giving at Christmas, what is that about? Well, I think it, it comes from generations where we didn't have a lot of stuff and finding little special treats and indulgences at Christmas were a way of showing that, hey, we're okay. We're going we're gonna to make it. We're safe. And I had interpreted gifting myself as I grew up as a sign of, you know, we're making enough money, even though, it, you know, it may look like the light bill is getting too high and the mortgage for my parents is getting out of reach. Um, Christmas was this time, of, oh, well, if we can afford these presents, then, then we're okay. And now, though, as a parent myself, I see the gifting that has become tradition, and it's frightening. It's very frightening because it's not saying to my children, we're okay, because I'm looking at it and having a great big anxiety bubble. Not only do I have to try to figure out what to do with this crap, but every little item that's given to my children as a gift becomes a mark of, oh, my God, what is this costing the planet? Mm. And, and what is this costing in ecological resources? And who suffered to make this? And it's suddenly this, this little symbol of we're okay, we're safe, we're happy, the family is fine. It doesn't mean that anymore. And so Christmas so easily gets eroded when you're on this path. And what I found for our family was we just had to keep trying. And for as the essay talks about, the one thing that became a holiday tradition for a while was that we were trying new traditions every year to try to find the right combination of what would work for our family. And we did get there. My family, thank Thank heavens, my family was so, I know we were hard on them with our harsh views, but at the same time, they were so tolerant. We were a young family trying to find our own way, and they accepted that. And as a result, we did find traditions that worked for us. Um, The gifting got paired way back. The whole gift wrap thing went out the window, and we found that you know, nobody looks at us as Scrooge because we don't put lights outside our house on Christmas. And we learned, you know, let's how to eat better. And we just over time found a way. And one of our favorite family traditions that came out of this was, was celebrating Yule, actually, where Yule, which is the solstice, I'm sure a lot of your followers know this already, but I'll say it anyhow. It's December 21st. It's the shortest day and the longest night of the year. This has become my family's sacred time where we had, and uh, we use that as a time, three generations, we come together, we have a simple meal. It's not like an elaborate feast. It might be a stew that I put in the slow cooker and dessert could just be eggnog, nothing more. But the purpose of Yule is we take a log and we write our wishes and our prayers for the coming year and we tie it on with raffia and we put it in the fire and we just light a fire. And then we stand in a circle and we hold hands and we go around that circle and um, we, each family member tells every other family member one thing that they appreciate about them. And that's it. Hmm. And it's very quiet. No one from outside comes in. This is us. We cry. We sit quietly. We hug each other. We 
go home and then, you know, the next day goes back to our screaming, chaotic, <laughs> bizarre family that we are. But this, for me, has saved Christmas powerfully because it, it created a special time where none of the other stuff was around it, and it was about really getting to the core issues that presents do. Presents represent safety, security, affluence. Well, what are the real sources of safety and security and affluence? Their family or whoever, you're, whether it's blood kin or family of choice, fictive kin. And it's knowing that you're going to take care of each other. It's knowing that you value each other. It's knowing that the people who you are closest to recognize your role in their quality of life. So we found with that tradition that we could get to the core of what the other stuff pretended to get at. And that was incredibly valuable for us. Yes, they're still gifting on Christmas morning, and believe me, my kids love it, but it's not beyond our financial means. We shop locally. You know, we do small things, or it's something that they really need for school or something like that, but it's not the big over-the-top light squiz bangs and and chaos that, that Christmas is for other people. And it's come now, it went from being a time of year that I dreaded to being a time of year that I just really look forward to. I try to um, shut down the blog and take time off. And my husband and I have learned, and I talk about this in the essay too, that Christmas gifts don't work for us. What excites us is learning new things. Mm. So Yeah, we're there too. Year, yeah. So that's our Christmas present to ourselves, whether it's teaching ourselves a new a new song that he plays on the guitar and I learn to sing or I teach myself something new on, I play recorder and work on that or I teach myself a new knitting pattern. Um, it's very stimulating for us to, to get into ideas and to challenge ourselves and we realize those are the things that actually absorb us and make us happier than, far happier than anything that we could wrap up under a tree. Mm-hmm. And so, in addition to the Yule celebration, this celebration of giving ourselves time off to learn something new is is the way we indulge ourselves. Well, oh, that's wonderful. We have about a hundred more things to talk about, but unfortunately, we're reaching the end of our time here. And you probably have chores to do, I imagine. You know what I have to do tonight? I have to make socks. <laughs> socks. I I have one of these. We decided to invest in one of these uh, rep- reproduction post-World War I sock knitting machines as a way to process our wool. And I thought it was such a good idea. Look, guys, look at the value we can return on our wool. Now all I can do is freaking crank socks. <laughs> so it's a machine that makes socks? It's a hand-crank machine. You have to know something about knitting to do it, but it's a machine that makes socks where... You know, for me to knit a pair of socks would take about uh, two weeks. I can do a pair of socks, start to finish, custom fit, so that, you know, you need it, you know, do you need it tight across the bridge of your foot? Do you want it loose? Do you want any of that? In two hours and 15 minutes. Wow. Wow. And so then you're selling those, and people are putting in orders for high-arch socks. Yes, I had to, I can, but I'm learning, 
<laughs> you know, I wasn't sure how, you know, I, I was, when I decided to move the wool business into this, I was thinking, all right, I got to figure out how to market this. Well, that's not the problem. <laughs> Everybody, it turns out, would really love a pair of, of handmade wool socks. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a slave laborer over here trying to keep up. I You're doing penny doing... piece work in your own little old triangle shirt factory there. <laughs> you got it. I am still paying the price right now. <laughs> but I have really nice socks. That's amazing. Well, tell us where, uh, tell listeners where they can, uh, you've already mentioned your blog, I think we should mention it again, but also your books, where they can buy a copy of your books. Sure. The, um, the blog is at theradicalhomemaker.net, and you'll find all about the farm there. You'll find out about, you know, you can follow the blog. I also try to do a recipe each week. Just so your listeners are aware, there are years and years and years of archives there, but I do have to take a sabbatic every year. So I shut down uh, just before Christmas, and I start up again in May. Um, this gives me time to write whatever the next book is that's on my docket. So, um, And it also gives me some more breathing room with my family. But if they come to the blog at the end of December, there are so many blog posts up there that they can read essays all year long, and they'll, they still will have plenty of material left by the time I start blogging fresh in the spring. <clears throat> and for the books, of course I sell the books on my website. If you want to support me directly, that's so kind, because I don't take any advertising. The blog is purely supported by the sale of my books and our farm products. But if you know other venues are more suitable, you can order my book through any local independent bookstore, and they're also available through the conventional online channels as well. And, and they're available as e-books and as print books. And if you're in the New York area, you're farm products as well. That's right. You can find us at the Packetack and Round Barn Farmers Market, and um, all that information is on the blog. They can find out about how to find us. Well, thank you, Shannon, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It's always a delight. I love talking to you guys. Any chance I can get. That was radical homemaker Shannon Hayes. One of the most interesting parts of our conversation was unfortunately lost when I had to change out the batteries of our recorder. Thankfully, some of those ideas can be found in a new blog post Shannon wrote called Why My Kid Hates Santa. You can find that blog post, as well as her books and farm products, on her website, theradicalhomemaker.net. To leave a comment for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also available on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 